Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This podcast contains explicit language. Welcome back to Candidate Confessional. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. Jason, I want to talk to you a little bit about this Washington Post piece that was published in 2009. It's an odd little item on Michael Steele and his use of rap slang. So, hear this. At the time, Steele is chair of the Republican National Committee and is far and away the best-known African-American Republican in the country. And at the time, he made a series of remarks where he dropped phrases like spling-bling and slum-love. <laughs> and he may, as the Post reported in gritty detail, referenced public enemy's time bomb. Which is just a natural thing for a politician to do. No, it's not. So the mockery worked for a reason, mainly because the Republican Party has this terrible time attracting African-American voters, and the concept, the idea that you can just do it by dropping a Wu-Tang reference is, it's preposterous. But the mocking also suggests maybe we are we are still a little bit uncomfortable with the concept of a black republic. Yes, exactly. And, and for instance, the Washington Post reporter who applied the Urban Dictionary to steal, that guy was a middle-aged white man. And we should point out that we are two white guys. Well, yes, but I'm not middle-aged. Either am I. No, you are. So when Steele came into the studio, we asked him about all of this, and we did it through the lens of his failed 2006 bid for the United States Senate, which featured, among other things, some particularly nasty moments involving race. And at the end, we had to play him some key and peel. Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. <laughs> I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. <laughs> so this is a podcast about people who've run for office and who have lost. 
Oh, great. <laughs> you don't want to be also, this is this is some form of cathartic kind of yeah, <laughs> reliving, a, reliving my worst moments in politics. Actually, that's precisely why we do where's it. The, where's the box of tissues? Oh, yeah. I just want to <laughs> I hate voters. So 2006, let's start there, and we'll, we'll actually move back to 2002 eventually. Okay. Um, I think what you guys were saying when I entered was that had you not run in 2006, you'd be a senator. Yeah, that's a very clear uh, point, and I hear it um, not just anecdotally, but when you look at the look at the the numbers before and after that cycle, uh, two thousand six was just a incredibly poisonous year for Republicans. The brand had sunk to uh, a new low. Um, the White House was scrambling, dealing with. Uh, with the war in Iraq, it was dealing with um, internal pressures at home on the economy, which was beginning. Too. Then there was Katrina, which was a whole nother can of worms, um, which really created some some tensions between me and uh, some of the folks in the West Wing um, because I did not want to carry that that water on Katrina the way they wanted it carried at the time. And as you recall, there were a number of candidates. Um, who were also running for the U.S. Senate or governor or, or some other offices who were distancing themselves from the White House. Sure. I didn't. I Look, I, I, I was a fan then. I'm a fan now of George Bush and his presidency. And, I, yes, I have issues with a number of policies and things that they did. Yeah. But the man himself, uh, I had an immense but, amount of respect okay, for. The, so, the, But that, but that was— Toxic huh? Toxic climate. But it was, yeah. But I was going to say the under, underlying— root of everything was very poisonous. So then why the fuck did you run? Uh, aside getting a phone call from the president and the vice president. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I just had, and I'm, I'm the sitting you, uh, lieutenant governor of my state, and I, I think we've done a very good job. And it, I have to be honest with you, it was a very, very hard decision to make. Uh, it meant coming off of the ticket uh, with Bob Ehrlich, who I thought... Uh, and I think everyone would agree was a very, very good governor for Maryland. Um, but even his, even his campaign suffered as a consequence of the poison um, that was out there about Republicans. I, I, you know, Bob and I talk about this to this day. If I'd stayed on the ticket and we'd and we'd run as a unit, you know, we probably could have beat back some of that. But when we split, yeah. it's you know, it's sort of the divide and conquer thing. We got conquered by the wall of ugly that was out there. But, you know, you're a young man. Yeah. What are you, 35? I appreciate, I love this book. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good podcast. I look 35. (laughs) You you certainly had to think in in your mind, okay, this is. Oh, there were moments I go, what the hell are you doing? And why why are you putting up with this shit from these people? Who are these people? I mean, I did a lot of, you know, Seinfeld impressions at the time because it was, there were moments. You want to give us one? Yeah. Who are these people? <laughs> and what did what did Bush and Why Cheney? Would you do? What did Bush and Cheney say to you to get you in the race? We need you to run. <laughs> it was very and basically that. Uh, no, they no they again they they appeal to that sense of, of of service and the opportunity. I mean, there there are a number of things that kind of converge in a moment like that. There's the politics. Okay, there's an open U.S. Senate seat, and you know I'm you know I've been a fairly successful lieutenant governor. You know, pretty well regarded in the state. Um, known nationally, I mean, I was I've been involved in the party. I was a county chairman, state chairman. It was um, uh, you know someone that had had roots around the country, working with other political leaders in the party. So it wasn't like, oh, gee, there's the black guy. Let's go ask him to run. So there was none of that because I, I just don't play that games. But um, 
I, you know, I, I know that I know and had a relationship with the Bush family. Um, the president's sister lives in Maryland, uh, and I gotten to know her over the years. And certainly, Jeb, I gotten to know and do some things with uh, in my official capacity and in personal capacity. So I kind of had a relationship with the family. So you know, when the president calls, you take the call. You do. I'm joking. Of course you do. <laughs> you, know, you, you take the you call. Don't put them on hold? Okay. You don't put them on hold. Um, and you listen. You listen carefully. And, and you appreciate the fact that the president thinks enough of you to, to ask you to do this. And so that weighs in heavily. Then you have to, of course, weigh that against your spouse, who, I mean, and, who has, has a slightly different opinion, <laughs> moralized, what are you, crazy? What was her opinion? What are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> the calls came like the, the day Sarbanes announced he was retiring. Oh yes, it was. Look and, and think about it. I I really didn't get into race until almost seven or eight months later because yeah. I didn't want to. I didn't want to fall into the trap first off of being you know the the figurehead. You know, oh let's put him out there and, and let's run the race. I'm like, no, okay. I want I want support. I want money. I want infrastructure. I want um, I want a clear deck to because I can't waste resources in a primary in a fight that you know with, with that doesn't go anywhere and so you you handicap yourself coming into the general election so you know I got the rule eleven letter from the party uh, where they they said all right we're gonna we're gonna you're gonna be our guy we're gonna get behind you and from the White House to the, to the party leadership to the governor's office to you know. Uh, the counties and and everybody, we were all of the mind that we can do this. The fact that Bush and Cheney both called you up and, and encouraged you to run, I mean, that sort of presaged the problems that you're going to have, which is you ended up having to do fundraisers, not having to do, you ended up doing fundraisers with Bush, with Cheney. Didn't mind it at all. With That that, that didn't hurt. You know, I'm, I'm not saying it hurt, right. but it certainly was complicated because oh, it was they complicated. not exactly well-loved figures in Maryland. But, you know, you know, it was less complicated on the war stuff and more complicated on the uh, Katrina stuff. Uh, for the last four days, uh, I've been seeing dead bodies in the streets here in Mississippi, uh, and to listen to politicians thanking each other and complimenting each other, uh, you know, I got to tell you, there are a lot of people here who are very upset. Because again, I live in a black community, so that was of paramount importance, not to mention I had family and friends who were affected by it. I I thought the the president had been ill-served, and I said so publicly at the time, which really rubbed Karl Rove the wrong way. Um, and But I didn't give a rat's ass about it because at the end of the day, as I said to Carl, when I go into a Starbucks in my neighborhood, I look in front of me and behind me and I see black folks. Who do you see? Yeah. Who do you go home uh, and, and see in your neighborhood? I've got to deal with the people in my neighborhood. So I've got to be first authentic and true to myself. And then second, I've got to be there and honest for them. But were there debates in going into those fundraisers, for instance, about, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this because we're going to get some really bad no. headlines. We're going to be tied to this administration that's I look I, there was a, there were folks who were squeamish about uh, Dick Cheney coming in and doing a fundraiser and the president coming and doing a fundraiser and you remember fundraiser you remember at the time there were a lot of Republicans who were like no Mr. President you know we don't need you to come and, <laughs> you, don't need, you know my buddy we uh, might be busy uh, Mr. Keene <laughs> up in, in New Jersey is like uh, uh, no you know you don't need to come up here that's all right um, no we don't need you up here and uh, certainly a lot of the blue state Republicans were running away from the White House I was like, that is not on honest, number one. It's not authentic. I mean, I, I was a supporter of the president. I, I went around the country for him in 1994. 
how do I now, 18 months later, sit there and go, dude, don't <laughs> don't come into my backyard? So I had to be honest about that, and I was. And, you know, there were some folks who were nervous, but I'm like, if the vice president and the president wants to do a fundraiser for me, mm-hmm. hello, set the time, the date, the place, and we get it done. And we did. Was there some negative press from it? Yeah, there was negative press, but it wasn't, it didn't, it didn't reverberate negatively with the voters. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's some Democrats even said to me, you got balls for at least, sta- <laughs> I mean, you're, you're standing next to your guy. We got to respect that. I yeah. mean, at the well, end you, of the And you raised some good money, too. Oh, we raised, I raised more than the Democrats did. did. Yeah. In 2002, when I ran for lieutenant governor, um, there were there were a number of instances of of racism, outright racism by Democrats in the state um, that went unreported, um, unacknowledged, um, and and really I would say accepted um, by the press. Uh, who didn't cover? We would tell them, "Look at this," and they were like, "Oh, that's just politics." I'm like, "That's what were bullshit." Some of the, what were some of the? Oh, uh, so for example, um, there were ads that were done that uh, showed me in blackface. Now, as a black man, <laughs> putting me in blackface is you know with big red lips and the sort of Al Jolson mammy hands. Yeah, that bullshit. And then you had. Um, uh, the the moment when during the debate, after the debate that we had, we're all standing around in the auditorium afterwards, and I looked down at my sh- at my feet, and someone had tossed or rolled Oreo cookies, meaning oh, black on the outside, white on the inside, um, at me, and I'm like, what the hell is this bullshit, you know? And and so you had those types of of, of things in my neighborhood. Signs went up in the last two to three weeks uh, along the road. Just you could drive up Central Avenue, um, two fourteen, and there would be signs um, that would say stuff like, um, re- "What was it? Remember, uh, remember who's, remember who's on your side. Um, uh, black, black ain't enough, uh, and stuff like that." So what I told my team to do was like, "Okay." Screw it. Let's do this and have fun. So we had a six foot four, because that's my height, Mm -hmm. cardboard cutout of me posted at every polling place in Baltimore and Prince George's County. So when you walked in, we wanted you to know who Michael Steele was, even though you knew I was a lieutenant governor. But you had to find a way to push back and to show that you're not affected by that. You you have a problem with my blackness? Well, let me show you how black I am. Mm -hmm. And... And so you, you, you have to figure out a way to go around it or deal with it. But, yeah, you had all of these little little vignettes that would unfold during the course of the campaign, whether it was, you know, Mike Miller, Senate president, referring to me as an Uncle Tom with impunity. No, there was no there was, it was like the words ran trippingly off his tongue and people were like, oh, OK, reporters writing this shit down. I'm how do you going, spell uncles yeah, with, how do you a spell, one with a one U? <laughs> is it a C L E or is it C E L? You know, it, it's and you're sitting there going, really? So you've had this uh, episode in 2002 where it's pretty bad. Yeah. And 
you know, obviously you're not going to duck away from doing this again, but certainly that must have weighed on your mind when you decided to enter an even higher profile it, you know, I, you know, I have to tell you honestly, I, I, I come at this from a very different space. I spent a number of years in a monastery uh, before I got into politics, yeah. full blown. And so my psyche, my my orientation is rooted somewhere else. And, and so I don't – there's a lot of stuff that bothers me, um, but how I handle it and how I deal with it um, is going back to that, that space – that I once occupied in my heart and my mind. Um, and it helps me kind of deal with and put into perspective the crazy that's in front of me. Well, how did it bleed into the 2006 campaign? Because there was so much fascination. And it wasn't just you. I mean, Lynn Swan was running up in... in, in Lynn in, Swan, and then you Ken had... Black, right, Blackwell in Ohio. In Ohio, right. So there was this whole... Oh, did you, did you see the article that, that came out? I think it was a Cosmopolitan article. Uh, that They eventually, they took it down fairly quickly once once we really brought out who had referred to Ken Blackwell, Lynn Swan, and myself, two of us running for uh, the U.S. Senate. Uh, no. Two running for governor. For governor and, and me running for the U.S. Senate as the lawn jockeys of the Republican Party. There did seem to be stories every week addressing race and you were called out not you're not addressing it enough you're not doing it too much it's like you, yeah, so take us inside the well yeah the well you can't here. you can't you can't be black when you're a candidate and we've seen this play out with Barack Obama and I think he's I think he's taken the the short way out which is not to deal with the issue of race at all effectively um, except for when he really has to um, and he can't be seen talking about black issues because all of a sudden now, oh my God, you know, then all your all you care about are black people. Like, well, yeah, I'm black, so I guess that helps. <laughs> um, you you can't. But then again, if you don't say enough, then then you have black folks pissed off at you. Mostly black liberal Democrats who bought into a system that has failed the community, and we can have that conversation. Um, who sit there and they scream at you about who you have on your staff? That was that. You know, it's like what I what I told the campaign was look. These are things that we're going to have to deal with. Who's on our staff? Who isn't on our staff? Because I had to deal with that as lieutenant governor. You know, um, I wanted a, I, I had a black chief of staff, and everyone threw a hissy fit. Didn't know how to deal with the brother. I'm like, dude, he's, just, he's a political operative like everybody else. He's the chief of staff. Just deal with him. Mm-hmm. But that was a problem. You have, you know, in the campaign environment itself, you know, well. You have no blacks on your staff. Well, okay, that's that's probably true. You know why? Because the party's never taken the time to actually groom blacks to be political operatives, to be campaign managers, political directors, communication directors, finance directors. So when I have to go as a candidate into a, a statewide campaign or even I'm running for local sheriff, what pool of talent am I going to pull from? I'm going to pull from the established talent that has been developed by the white infrastructure, which is largely white males, not even females, except for money, because, the, you know, we can have that conversation about why they solely focus on, on women in that regard. But at the end of the day, you're looking at, you're looking at a system in which you, you have to try to figure out how to work. Were they trying to make you talk and act and be yes. more of a white yes. candidate? Yes. How so? What would they tell you? Well, they were just like, well, it wouldn't be like, you need to sound white. <laughs> but it would be like, well, you can't say that. When I was at the RNC, I actually had a member say to me, you know what your problem is? I was like, what? <laughs> I have many, but tell me. <laughs> you don't, you, you sound too black. Shut up. 
hand to God. When I write the book, baby, trust me. <laughs> oh, my God. What would you trust say to the me. guy? Wait, what would you say? It was a woman. Okay. We like, you how do you her? notice And I just looked at it and I was like, well, this is just what I am. <laughs> this is how we talk where I'm from. Jesus. I mean, yes. You took this, off your gang colors. Yes, this is this is what this is what I have to deal with. This is this is my life so in miniature. When when the DS accessed your credit card information, on a scale of one to ten, ten being really pissed off, one being mild, where were you? Really pissed off. Yeah. Really pissed off. Quick time out here to explain exactly what it is we're talking about. So back in the 2006 elections, a staffer with a Democratic senatorial campaign committee illegally obtained Steele's social security number and then used it to access his credit reports. It was a big deal and it kind of rocked the campaign for a bit. All right, back to the show. Because it was a violation of everything that um, we profess, particularly in a campaign setting. It, it, it violated all the all the bounds um, and the limits that, you know, everyone likes to get up to, but they don't cross. Um, and But probably more than anything else, what pissed me off was how the press didn't respond to it. They just didn't. They, they took it as part of, well, you're a Republican. What do you expect? I liked how the DS fired two very junior people. Thank for, you. <laughs> for, for, for somehow... Going rogue and <laughs> right, right. I'm like, wait a minute. This was this was up here at the top, but this wasn't something. Two little rogue guys, girls sitting in a in a corner lab somewhere. Like, oh gee, let's go and and set up this phony dummy account. It, it, but it, again, it, it was just the the lack of response, the lack of pursuit to truth, and the lack of holding yeah. Schumer and his operation accountable for what they did, but particularly did you- in the face of how. People were responding to any slight, perceived or otherwise, towards Barack Obama at yeah. the time. But did you at that point were you like, "Holy shit, this is like this shit just got real"? Like I thought, "Oh no, it was real long before that." Okay. No, that it, it did, put it this way: as as angry as I was, it didn't surprise me. Okay, it, it, I wasn't surprised by this by this happening. I was just, if I was surprised by anything, it was like, "What took you so long?" <laughs> <laughs> I thought we would have to deal with this shit a long time ago. I mean, well, you know. I mean, it did seem like, you know, once a week or every other week, you would say something or show up something that sort of shocked the establishment. You showed up, at I think, at a uh, Congressional Black Caucus fundraiser. Yeah. Which sort of ruffled people. Oh, well, yeah. What was that like when you walked Well, A, I was invited. So uh, these are these are colleagues in some cases, friends in other cases, um, and it was an interesting moment because there were a lot of a lot of members of the of the caucus who came up to me uh, to express their appreciation for what I've been doing on reforming small business enterprise for Black folks in the state, uh, pushing the envelope uh, on some education uh, things. Um, criminal justice, um, looking at reforming our juvenile justice system, particularly uh, Eager Street Academy in Baltimore City at the time. Uh, so, yeah, there was – and I knew these folks. They knew me. I was, not a, I was not a stranger. And this is what I've always said to to party people. Don't be a stranger to the people you're talking to. Yeah. You know, you, you sit there and you, oh, we want the black vote. Well, damn it, go get off your ass and go get it. 
and that means showing up and, and being in a space that sometimes makes you uncomfortable. And that's what I believed in doing, being uncomfortable. So when I got the invitation, I went. And it made a whole lot of people very uncomfortable. And I'm like, deal with it. There's a theme sort of developing in this campaign, which is there's one sort of contentious moment followed by another contentious moment. It just seemed like it was building. Welcome to Steel World. And well, there was the, there was the, the country club comment where I think Ehrlich we had could... Ellington Country Club, or was it? Where it was a whites-only country club. and That who? That I went to? No. No. No, I don't think you would get in. Ah, thank you. I was going to say. <laughs> Ehrlich played. Think, oh, oh uh, where Ehrlich played at And then oh. you said, I don't care about it. I didn't care about it because I think at the end of the day— So I don't play golf. I, right. I don't play golf. So what the hell? Why would I be upset about where he plays golf? But what, but what does that say? <laughs> I mean, look, but this is— this you, is, You've never played golf? I have played golf, but I don't play it well. Let me just make this point on this sure. because I think it's important about race. We fixate on the unimportant stuff. Yeah. And we blow it up to the point where it's supposed to mean something when, in fact, it means nothing. And that was my point was when I'm looking at a public school system in which black kids are treated not as second-class citizens but not as citizens at all because they don't have the resources, they don't have the teachers, they don't have the infrastructure they need to support them, I find that to be more racially offensive than where the governor plays golf. So I was trying to bring clarity and perspective, and a lot of times— in 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 this in this world, this space that both of us occupy together, um, media and and political, um, we lose sight of that, and we want to we want to chase the rabbit down the hole of well, what's your reaction to the governor playing at an all white country course uh, golf club? I'm like, well, they still have those, okay. Oh, if they do, then okay, how did he do? <laughs> how did he? Uh, but now, can we talk about the fact that in this community, blacks could not even get uh, transportation to that country club to protest the fact that it's still all white. I'm wondering if there were white Republicans that saw you and were skeptical of you or didn't trust you because of your race. Um, they would never say it. Uh, you never get that sort of uh, overt sort of um, response. But let me, let me tell you what my test was. Um, so... I, you know, I'm very sensitive to race for a whole lot of reasons because I think it's something we don't deal with in this country. We don't know how to deal with. We don't want to deal with it. We kind of dance around it. So going into the 06 campaign, one of our first polls, I said to my team, I said, can I put a question on the ballot? I said, in fact, I have two, and I need them to run back to back. And they're like, uh, okay, what? I said, the first question is, would you vote for an African-American for the United States Senate? And the second question is, would your neighbor vote for an African-American for, for, for the United States Senate? First question came back 74 percent yes. Second question came back 43 percent yes. So you're trying to measure so, the so-called Bradley effect. Right. So the reality, the reality is that number, that second number. Yeah, not the first. Not the first. Take the 06 election between with me and Kwesi and Fumi on the Democrat side, me on the Republican, Take the 2014 election um, with, um, with uh, Brown, Lieutenant Governor Brown, mm -hmm. running for, as a Democrat, um, and Larry Hogan. So here you have in two moments, two opportunities to make history as a state. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Send a black man to the Senate. Nominate uh, Kwasi Fume, And he and I talked about this. What a, what a race it would for, be. For the listeners, Kwasi Fume was the, the, the former head of the NAACP, um, and he was a candidate for the United States Senate. Who lost to Cardin. Who lost to Ben Cardin. Who lost to Ben Cardin. Who lost to Ben Cardin mm-hmm. in the Democratic primary, which is close to 40% black. Kwasi and I would talk about the fact the goal for our respective campaigns is for both of us to win, to be in the general, because that way we knew there would be an African-American going to the United States Senate. And when he lost his primary, um, that to me said a lot. So I want to, the, the reason I want to, I want to sort of make this more, or I'm trying to hit on a theme, which is that there's a lot of controversial things going on. You enter the race, you raise a lot of money. It's right. a close race. Yep. We're going from controversy to controversy. You put out this ad, the infamous or famous, because it's not infamous, the puppy ad. Mm-hmm. So tell us the story of the puppy ad. Puppy ad is... is, is... From the origins to its publication. Okay. So the, the origins of the puppy ad was we, were, we had done an ad before. And the uh, the Democrats had kind of, you know, gone after me. And they'd started to come after me on a whole bunch of stuff. And I, I was sitting around a table like this with my team and we were talking. And I'm listening to I'm listening to all these folks. And, and I told them, I said, look, guys, I can't do red, white, and blue. I'm not a red, white, and blue Republican. I'm sorry. You cannot do an ad with me sitting in front of some friggin' picket fence with the flag flying over my head and this <laughs> sick-ass music playing underneath. I said, that's... As you, as you walk through a... A cornfield corn or, or a cotton field or whatever <laughs> the freak you want me to walk through. Um, that just, that's not... I come from the hood. I come from 8th Street, Petworth. I, it's a whole different... So I need to keep it real. All right. So that's one. Two... You and I know, because it already started this, I think this was bef- after the um, the um, uh, Schumer thing, and they're already starting to come after me. And I was like, look, you and I know that they're going to come after me, and they're going to they're gonna say, you know, I'm the worst thing ever since, you know, since God created man. They're only going to say, I hate puppies. 
They're going to say it. So the next day, I come into the office and the guy brought in this puppy. He said, we're going to make an ad. I was like, okay, let's talk about that. So we talked it through and I said, great, let's do it. And at the time, I remember, if you remember, I think it was one of the um, clothing commercial lines or maybe it was an Apple commercial where it had all the, the, the white, it was just the plain white background. So I said, that's what I want. I said, we're going to do this straight onto the camera. No frills, no red, white, and blue, no picket fences, me looking at the camera. And this is, and I said, I said, and I, because I actually literally wrote the first word. Hey, me again, Michael Steele. Soon your TV will be jammed with negative ads from the Washington crowd. Grainy pictures and spooky music saying Steele hates puppies. And worse, for the record, I love puppies. And I got to the point where I said, they'll even say I hate puppies. And they showed me with the puppy and it took off. It just, it was... I guess groundbreaking in the sense that here you have this candidate looking directly at the camera and just telling people what he thought and what he felt. Wait a second. That wasn't your dog? No, that wasn't my dog. Oh. Was it tough to be around puppies knowing <laughs> that you hated them and not to pretend <laughs> that you like puppies? <laughs> like, you're right, do you right, even I, want a dog? I do. I have a Siberian Husky. And you didn't want to bring your dog on? He, I didn't have him at the time. Oh, okay. I didn't have a dog at the time. You, you, you immediately went and bought a dog after the ad. No, no, actually, <laughs> no. I never, I never claimed that puppy was mine. Okay. I just uh, said misleading. I just no. Why, why is it misleading? It looked like it was your dog. They checked his you, credit so records. If you, if you, no if, per dog purchases. Yeah, there was no like, dog purchases. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like if you run into a friend who has a puppy, you go up to him and you pet the puppy, right? Not you don't. Always. You don't claim. You don't claim ownership of the dog. All right. How many takes was that? That we did that in three. Wow. And the dog obliged. Dog, the dog was great. The dog was actually better than I was. <laughs> the dog, the dog. dog was great. So that ad comes out. The summer goes on. The polls kind of show a, a tight race. It was really tough to tell how it was going to go. Right. At what point did you sense it slip away? I'll be honest with you. I never sensed it slipping away. There was not, there was not a moment where I felt, damn, we're not going to win this. Uh, and, I, you know, I have a pretty acute antenna for that kind of thing, given the number of campaigns. I, look, I ran for Comptroller in 98, got my clock cleaned. I ran, um, you know, uh, r- I helped run other campaigns, and, and we've gotten our clocks clean. So I know what losing feels like. There was not a moment where I thought, we're not going to win this, we can't win this. I always felt that we were we would be in this thing. Look, I got... I got sitting Democrats in Prince George's County to endorse me yeah. in the United States Senate. That, that to me, was a very powerful, unprecedented moment in Maryland politics for as partisan as Maryland is. As you know, Maryland is one of the most partisan states in the country um, where party matters to a lot of people. And yet you had elected officials in office endorsing me because of what I had been doing and and where I wanted to go. And they knew I wasn't going to be that kind of person in the Senate. But surely it must have felt uh, that different outside forces were weighing you down. I mean, Bush, the Iraq War, but also I want to just touch on one specific policy, which Mm -hmm. seemed to dominate your campaign, and I forget about it. People forget about this now because it was long ago. It was stem cell research. Yes, yes. That that was... uh, very powerful under undercurrent within within the campaign because I'm pro-life uh, and and the Dems felt that they uh, they had a hook um, and I've battled this pro-life question from the very beginning 
Uh, and I'm unabashedly proud of my policy view and my position on this, both from a policy and a moral perspective. Um, the difference between me and a lot of folks is I'm not going to beat you up over it. I'm not going to criticize you or condemn you for it. But they thought that they could use that as a hook. So what they did was they got Michael J. Fox, of whom I'm a huge fan. Um, and and it, that, that was a little bit of a sting, to be honest, to see the yeah. Michael J. Fox, because I so admired him. He was the Republican's Republican uh, on, on television. Attacks is a terrible, hairy, liberal monster. Family ties back in the 80s as a young man. I mean, we're contemporary, so we were, you know, young men together. I'm kind of watching and relating to him, and he's out there sort of saying, and as a character, I get it. It's not necessarily his personal view, but... It just felt, you just felt a nexus. So when he runs the ad, I'm like, damn, really? You got to go there? So I was like, all right, fine. I'll up you one. I'll have my sister, who has MS, respond. And she did with perhaps one of the most beautiful ads uh, that I that certainly saw in that cycle. There's something you should know about Michael Steele. He does support stem cell research, and he cares deeply for those who suffer from disease. How do I know? I'm Michael Steele's little sister. After that, they pulled the Michael J. ad because all of a sudden, they this, again, tells you about the arrogance of the other side. They thought they knew me. They thought they knew stuff about me. They thought they knew my family. They didn't know my sister was A, a doctor, pediatrician, uh, B, uh, suffers MS. And that by some weird, freaky family thing that we would actually talk about this stuff (laughs) – and and have an understanding of where each other's were on the issue. Yeah. Um, and so, as my sister said in the ad, Michael Steele would never do anything that would harm me. So you know he's not going to do anything to harm you. Yeah. You know. And so, boom, took it down. That that sort of right in the moment. That was the other thing. It was sort of an internal battle because again, the establishment types that I brought into the campaign were afraid to to take that head on. Yeah. They didn't want to go, well, you know, Lieutenant Governor, I don't think you need, we just, we don't say anything. You know, Michael J. Fox is a big national figure. He's Hollywood. They put a lot of money. I'm like, let's take this son of a bitch on. (laughs) You're not going to sit there and let this sit out there and have this define my position on stem cell. What was the first moment in the campaign where you were like, why did I fucking do this? <laughs> uh, probably 15 minutes after I said, okay. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh, this is going to be a shit storm, I know. But um, there were many moments like that. There were, there were many. Tell us a few. Well, um, I think, you know, certainly um, dealing with the race stuff was a moment. Dealing with the how, you know, my sister... Uh, the whole uh, stem cell issue, as you noted, Sam, was, was something that continued to be a thread that kept coming back, recurring. Um, it, when it started to affect my family in a way, um, you know, where they were kind of brought into it, there was all the noise about, you know, my sister holding a fundraiser. There was noise about, you know, um, the the nature of the campaign and what we were doing. And, you know, everybody's just kind of peeling back the onion and trying to find something yeah, you ask yourself, why are you doing this? And you, and if you stay stuck on that, then you wind up running a very bad campaign because you're always chasing that rabbit.
tell us a story about, um, well, two stories. Mm-hmm. First, let's do the Michael Steele or Steele Democrat bumper sticker. <laughs> let's be. I think it it's, it's time to admit. Thing. It's time to admit it. It you, is the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. I was laughing my patootie off when I when people would when I hear Democrats complaining about oh he's hiding from being Republican. I was like, how stupid do you sound? These do are you, bumper stickers that said Steel Steel Democrat, Democrat, which to me was kind of cute because it's steel. <laughs> And steel sometimes sounds like still. So you're still a Democrat, but you're a steel Democrat. But this was the key thing for me. Had you never heard of Reagan Democrats? Why all of a sudden, well, now that I'm saying steel Democrats, that somehow this has now transformed the political landscape. All I did was borrow from Ronald Reagan, who had Democrats who supported him. Remember, I had been endorsed by Democrats. So it only stood to reason to have a bumper sticker that said, hey, I'm a steel Democrat. But the Democrats knew, and this was the only they knew the power of that. They knew what that said to those Democrats that they wanted to keep corralled in a particular space to not look beyond what BS they had been doing. Are you saying you weren't trying to necessarily present yourself to voters? No. How? Why? I'm a sitting Republican lieutenant governor. (laughs) How do I hide from that? I don't I think he's right. I don't. Well, I, I, I mean, it I'm seemed gonna, obvious to me what he was what he was trying to. I, I guess I have to contest this. Why are you contesting that? Because then, then what happened was the this issue is of, taking a turn. I, this is the most contentious <laughs> podcast we ever had. Because then what happened was you there was the ballot issue or the the sample ballot in which you and Governor Ehrlich were listed on a sample Democratic the, the, ballot. That wasn't my campaign. That came from that came from the governor's reelection team. Right, that tell, was tell, a, tell the story from your perspective of that sample ballot because that was like the end controversy. Yeah. The the. The, there was a a group that had put together a sample ballot that had been signed off by the governor's team. But the but again, the sample ballot was just that a sample ballot. So it listed every candidate, every Republican candidate on the ballot. All right. So that was why I call it a sample ballot. But but the way it was put together and what what was left off and what was included um became controversial for a lot of a lot of the Democrats. Look, the Democrats needed a hook. They needed something because they were losing this race. They were losing the race for the Senate. They were losing the race for re-election. So again, go into the bag and pull out whatever you can and throw it on the wall to see whatever sticks. But this so you had, so the you, allegation is actually true, though. I mean, they did bring people in. Yeah, but again, erroneous ballot. Yeah, that 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 may be, but again, I'm talking. I only talked to my campaign because I ran a federal campaign, not a state campaign. Um, they listed, you know, the ballot. I was on the ballot, so yes, I was. So just part just of that. to get just to give the re- the listeners an understanding, as I understand it, people were brought in from out of state, poor people, some homeless, to hand out ballots that said nothing. Democrats hadn't done before. No, no, I'm not saying that. That the ballots were listed sample Democratic but that was ballot. The, but that was the reaction. See, oh well, well, no, no. Well, Democrats did. That's okay. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm no, just but I'm saying, just saying. But I, I want to just make sure I have are, the facts. Who right. are you accusing specifically, sir? <laughs> <laughs> so, but but the problem with the problem people had was not twofold. One was that they thought it was a misleading ballot because it seemed to label you and Governor Ehrlich as Democrats. But the second thing was that... How could... How could second thing was that there was homeless people who were handing them out. And they do that in Baltimore. It's called walking, walk around money in the in streets Philly. of Baltimore and Philly and everywhere else in the country. Yeah. So, hello. So you thought that you were... That the controversy was overblown, basically. Of course it was because it was more to score the political point. They needed something to tear down the governor in, in, in my campaign. And so this was the hook. But at the end of the day... 
what my argument back to folks, why are you acting like you've never seen this done in politics before? What Have you never heard of Chicago? Have you never heard of Philly? Have you never heard of Baltimore? Mm-hmm. How do you think Baltimore, how do you think the Democrats were electing folks um, it, all these years in, in, in getting their candidate, even through primaries? I mean, it's part of the process. It's an ugly part of it, but it's a part of the well, process. The Dem- Democrats don't pay people to hand a balance. They pay people to vote, right? I'm fucking with you. They, they do both. <laughs> Going into the, the the last weekend when the last polling was done, this was a 47-47, 45-43. You know, it was a very close race. There was about a 6% undecided that broke for the uh, the Democrats. It didn't break for Cardin as, you know, because, oh, gee, Cardin was all that in a bag of chips. They It broke for the Democrats. It, bro- it broke anti-Bush. Bush had become a weight uh, around the campaigns uh, across the country, not just mine, um, and that's and that was part of it. As, as we've seen uh, play out in recent times, uh, in recent elections with President Obama, Democrats not necessarily running headlong. Oh yes, we're all with the president in health care, um, creating that 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 distance as much as they possibly can because they know down ballot there is a drag that occurs and. You know, down ballot in a and this is this as one voter put it to me, Bush was not on the ballot, and I could only take out my anger on those who were, mm. and that that summed up the 2006 election. Congratulations! Thank you. <laughs> I felt so lucky, um, but I, you know, as I, as I told told McConnell a few months afterwards, I said, "You're the luckiest sob on the planet." He goes, "Why?" Because McConnell was a was a godfather to me in that race. He he really did a lot to help me and was very very supportive. Like what? Oh, he it just I mean aside from the obvious, oh, he put on fundraisers and introduced me to to folks around the country. Um, just his counsel uh, and and he would call from time to time and, he, and you know because McConnell is McConnell and I'm me and it's it's like oil and vinegar or water <laughs> and it's, it's you know but it works. They're good together, but it works. Um, and uh, he would, you know, tell me from time to time, well, you know, Michael, I don't know if that's exactly how you should say that or <laughs> if that's exactly what you should do. And, uh, he would always say to me, though, the one thing, he would always begin it in the conversation, how much money have you raised? Because he understood that in this race, I would need those resources to stay in the game. And he was very helpful there. But I remember saying to him afterwards, I said, look, you're the luckiest SOB on the planet. He goes, why? I said, because if I had won this race, I guarantee you every week you'd be calling my office. Has anyone seen Senator Steele? Could you ask him to come see me, please? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the kid being called to the principal office because the hill needs to be shaken. I mean, I have to jump in with this quote, which made me giggle, to be honest with you. When you said, the hood is going to show up on the hill, said Mr. Steele, they label you, a black Republican, because that's what articles had to label you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it said... Uh, <laughs> This is what cracked me up. He said he delivered a similar message to Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist. And I can't, I was just imagining you talking to Bill Frist, telling him the hood's going to show up. The hood's going to show up. I'm bringing 8th Street, baby. He's going to be like, excuse me. Excuse me? What do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean by hood? What, what, this is like over the oven? Uh, what, What exactly are you talking about? Hey, Jason here. Before we head into the next section, we need to give you a little bit of Steele's biography. Steele was raised in Petworth in Washington, D.C., and a graduate of Archbishop Carroll High School. He was lucky enough to be mentored by some of D.C.'s Democratic political elite. But a critical moment for him, at least politically, came in 1978 when he volunteered for Mayor Barry's first mayoral campaign. 
What advice did Marion Barry give you over the years, or did you guys talk when you ran for Senate? Um, the first campaign I worked on was his election in 1978 when he ran for mayor, which was a defining moment for the city of Washington, the best period, period, 78 to 82. Um, for the city when Marion, before the demons took over and, and a whole lot of things started to go, really focused everybody's attention on the city. You saw the use of black power in a way that was was authentic, good, and had good results. This is a people's movement, old people, young people, poor people, all of whom live in the 3rd District. And it's not fair for these citizens who are gathered out here today to deliberately be left out of the picture. Um, the one thing he taught me, though, was never forget the people. Because at the end of the day, that's why you're here. You're here for them. Um, you, can, you can go to all the cocktail parties you want, but if you don't take time to go into, into, into Southeast, if you don't leave that cocktail party in Georgetown and take your butt over in the Southeast and spend some time with real folks, then you will have missed the opportunity. And that, for me, was was the driving message of why my focus has always been grassroots, has always been on a bottom-up solution. Because real people who live out life every day, they know. They know how to balance the budget. They know how to make the ends meet. They know how to educate their kids. They know how to run their businesses. And the people at the top have forgotten how to listen to them. Mm. And for me, it's a matter of bringing, elevating that voice up and, and making people pay attention to that. My only last question is, is there, is there anything that you regret doing from the race? Yeah, yeah. Um, when I look back on it, I, I, we took one thing for granted which we shouldn't have, and that was the vote in my home county. Despite the fact that we had, um, and Wayne Curry, God rest him, was the county executive, um, at the time, I had re- retired, but um, we talked about that, and and the regret was that after we I had worked very hard to get, and there were a lot of six thirty a.m. meetings that I went to with a, a group of business owners and political leaders in the county, and it was a real struggle because the life issue for some of them was a big deal. Uh, They did not want to endorse someone who was Mm -hmm. pro-life. And I had to talk to them about my view on that and and how I saw that in the context of being a U.S. senator, how I saw that in the context of my responsibility to the county, um, and brought them along. So there was a lot of hard work there. And we get this endorsement, and we failed to work it. We We took it for granted. We thought by having these five black Democrat leaders endorsed me that everything else would kind of fall into place afterwards. And we focused on Baltimore because Baltimore was the difficult nut to crack. And I spent a lot of time in Baltimore long before I had run for office and long before certainly I decided to run for Senate um, and had relationships there that we were really nurturing, trying to build. Um, and and we did extreme the best a candidate, Republican candidate, even to this day, has ever done in the city in terms of the turnout of the vote um, that we got. Um, but, but the lesson should be never forget home mm-hmm. because we took for granted what home would do and home didn't turn out the way by the numbers we thought because the folks at home were equally, if not more, afraid of a Bush senator 
than the folks in Baltimore, than the folks in Baltimore County, than the folks elsewhere. And so I regret not paying attention, closer attention to my peeps. As, as, which is as what Marion Barry had told you to do. Which is what Marion Barry had told me to do. That was Michael Steele, former Senate candidate and RNC chairman, all-around good guy, who sat down with us for what I honestly believe was a really candid interview. A big thanks, as always, to Christine Canetta, who puts up with our bullshit. You can find Candidate Confessional on iTunes or thehuffingtonpost.com. Please, please, please subscribe. Tell your friends. Next week, we bring you a YouTube legend. Well, a legend for all the wrong reasons. Ben Cannot, mayoral candidate of Toledo, who famously, mercilessly was booed in his run for office. Wait, wait, Until, wait, wait. Yes, before, go on, Sam, Jason. before we leave, we have to share one last moment we had with Steele. Okay. After our interview was over, we played him a sketch of from Comedy Central's Key and Peele yeah. on a meeting of black Republicans where they all look the same. We are not a monolith. Democrats may be cool, but they ain't practical. There you go. Republicans are practical. Black people are practical. Come to think of it, I think black Republicans are pretty cool. Mm. Not to mention very diverse. Excuse me, gentlemen. Uh, Sorry to interrupt. Someone's white wife is here to pick them up? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Was her name Emily? uh, Wow, yeah, which which I always found interesting uh, because that was actually an issue during the campaign about my wife, who is fair-skinned. Okay. And the radio station in Baltimore... Chastising me for being married to a white woman. Shut up! I kid you not. Oh, and um, yeah, I, I I remember going on the program and saying, "Okay, so all I have to say is, you need to say that to my wife's face, and you'll find out just how black she is <laughs> when she whips your ass." Uh, and they were like, "Oh my God, we're so sorry. We didn't know." I said, "Well, you you speak to a." to an ongoing historical issue within the within the black community itself, how we even define ourselves down in the black community, you know, between those with good hair, bad hair, light skin, dark skin. It's all bullshit. Was there something to their joke about it being, you know, we're not a monolith and everyone... I love that part because everybody would look the same, sound the same, and I actually had to reemphasize we're not a monolith. So, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I get it, and, and we're not a monolith. And, and <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to make set the record straight. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.